0: We are going to start in our spiritual uh, warfare, the the, the end of our spiritual warfare uh, series, but we've gone through a lot over these last several weeks. And we had a two week break. And so I'm a little worried about us that we need to catch back up a little bit. So I wanna start out, there's a, there's a video uh, that I found on BibleProject.com that I think does a great job of getting us to, in summary, getting us kind of to the point where we need to be in order to tackle these next couple of weeks. So it's a little bit long, uh, but I think it'll, it'll uh, help us get to where we need to be. So turn your attention to the screen. Let's watch this video to begin.
1: So we have been learning about spiritual beings in the Bible and I still have a lot of questions about the bad ones. Well, great. Let's talk about the Satan and demons in the story of the Bible. So let's start in the beginning. In Genesis 1, God creates a beautiful ordered reality out of darkness and disorder so that life can flourish. He appoints humans as his representatives to rule over all of it and seven times God calls it good. Yeah, I experience that kind of goodness often in the world in things like beauty and truth, love and generosity. But in Genesis 3, we meet a creature who is in a state of rebellion against his creator. We are not told yet why or how he rebels, but he's on a mission to ruin God's good world for other creatures. This thing is trouble. Yeah, this creature is the Bible's first portrait of evil. It distorts what God has purposed for good, ruining and dragging creation back into darkness and disorder. So the humans join the spiritual rebel, which leads them back into chaos and death. And from this point on, the human rebellion is interwoven with a spiritual rebellion. And the biblical story shows how this happens over and over again. Okay, but wait, we're getting all this from a slithering snake? Well, there are clues in the story that it's more than just a snake. Remember, Eden is a high place where the earth and its creatures overlap with heaven and its creatures. So, the snake could be a spiritual being. Well, Genesis 3 points in that direction and then later biblical authors fill in the picture. Like when the prophet Isaiah has a vision of God's heavenly throne room, he's surrounded and being praised by the spiritual beings. Yeah, these are the cherubim around God's throne. But when Isaiah sees these creatures, he describes them as seraphim, which in Hebrew means Snake. Ah, so the snake is like a former staff member in God's throne room. So why is he talking to the humans? Well, the prophet Ezekiel understood this figure as a spiritual rebel who did not want to live under God's wisdom and authority. He wanted to be God. Oh, right. That is the same temptation the snake puts before Adam and Eve. Exactly. He says they could rule the world like God, but by their own wisdom. So, they are all kicked out of the garden. Yeah, God says this rebel will now crawl on its belly. Where does it go after this? Well, the biblical authors offer subtle clues where this being is at work behind the scenes, animating division and hatred between humans. They also use a variety of images to describe this being. It is a snake or a sea dragon or a dark desert creature or the king of death in the grave. He's also given many titles, like Tempter, or the Evil One, or the Devil, which in Greek means the Slanderer. But his name is Satan, right? Actually, no. Satan is not a name. It's another one of these titles, which is why in Hebrew it has the word the in front of it. The Satan means the adversary, because he isn't for anything, rather, he's anti everything working through lies to drag us back into darkness and disorder. That is intense. Now, what about these other spiritual rebels in the Bible called demons? What are they all about? Okay, so remember the concept of God's heavenly staff team, the divine council, or the sons of God. In the Hebrew scriptures, we are told that some of these rebelled too. When did that happen? Multiple times, actually. After the snake comes the rebellion of the sons of God in Genesis 6. Oh, right. The Nephilim. These are probably the strangest characters in the whole Bible. Well, strange from your point of view. But ancient readers knew exactly what was going on. The ancient kingdoms around Israel claimed to be founded and protected by giant warrior kings who were part human, part God, and filled with divine wisdom. Ah, I see. So the biblical authors are saying, hey, those warrior kings, they shouldn't be honored. Right. In this story, they're portrayed as human rebels who are captive to spiritual evil, spreading their violence in God's good world. Yeah, and one of those kings in Genesis 10 goes on to build the city of Babylon. Yes, Nimrod, whose name sounds like the Hebrew word for rebel. And his kingdom leads to the next rebellion where humans exalt themselves in Babylon. But God scatters that rebellion. And when Moses in Deuteronomy looks back at that story, he says that is the moment when God handed over the nations to worship the rebel host of heaven. Moses is the first one to call them demons, that is, lesser spiritual beings. So demons are spiritual forces at work behind corrupt human power structures. Yes, but in the Bible they also work on the personal level, animating and exploiting humanity's greed and selfishness, as well as the weakness of our mortal bodies. In the Bible, spiritual evil is at work in anything that drags God's good creation back into chaos, darkness, and death. So, this is why when Jesus arrives on the scene, he said his primary enemy is not human. Right. Jesus and his first followers viewed all the pain and suffering in God's good world as a sign of its captivity to death and spiritual evil. But they did not think this was the end of the story. Right. Jesus knew that the only way out of this cosmic ruin is to overcome evil and death itself, even if it costs him everything.
0: So hopefully, as you can tell, if this is your first time with us, we've been through a lot of stuff. <laughs> There's been a lot there, and I would encourage you to go back and listen to those podcasts just to help get you caught up. But if, if we're honest, if when we get to the close of the Old Testament, the story looks pretty grim. And we've talked about this on multiple occasions. Israel is scattered in exile, having been uh, idolatrous. And it appears as though even the idolatrous nations uh, of the world and their rebel powers and principalities, it looks like they've completely snuffed out uh, Yahweh's children, God's covenant people. It looks to be over at the end of the Old Testament. And if it's over for God's covenant people, in a sense, it's over for God's plan to redeem Israel and redeem all of humanity. But in the backdrop, there's this strange thing that's been happening throughout the Old Testament, which is this prophetic promise of a faithful Messiah who will be righteous where Israel failed, who will gain uh, victory over Israel's enemies, who's going to reestablish Israel, reestablish and restore uh, worship and reclaim the nations of the world for Yahweh. That promise has been in the backdrop, but if on we're looking on the surface, the reality is all we've seen is devolving into more chaos and despair and destruction. And so how is this going to change? What is gonna happen to set things on a different course? And I wanna take you to the book of Isaiah. Now, the, the video there mentioned Isaiah chapter six. And if you'll remember, we're gonna be in Isaiah chapter 40. So go ahead and turn in your Bibles to Isaiah chapter 40. And by the way, if you don't have a Bible this morning, if you don't own one, just let one of our staff know we would be happy to send you home uh, with a copy of God's word. But in Isaiah chapter... 40, there's a moment that's going to look very similar to what happens in Isaiah chapter 6. Now, you remember in Isaiah 6, and it was alluded to in the video, we're taken into this moment where God is with this divine council. It's God and his staff team, and a question is asked. God says, Who will go for us? There are words that need to be spoken, there are promises and rebuke that need to be given to Israel, and God says, Who's going to go? Who's going to carry this message? And we know from that text in Isaiah, Isaiah 6, that Isaiah, the prophet, answers the call. And what does he say? It's a a famous passage in Isaiah 6, 8, where he says, here I am, send me. I will go. I will carry this this message. Well, in Isaiah chapter 40, there's a very similar moment. In verse 1 and 2, it says, comfort, comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and cry to her that her warfare is ended, that her iniquity is pardoned, that she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. Now, here's what's interesting. If you look at those two verses, what you'll notice is that in the Hebrew, the commands are in the plural. So what's happening is God is giving a command, basically in the context of a group, God is saying, go and comfort my people, speak to her. That's happening in the context of a group. It's similar to Isaiah 6, where there's this group gathered and God is giving instruction and command about the message that needs to be sent and just looking for who is it that will go. So in Isaiah chapter 40, the difference here is in verse 3. Look at verse 3. So, what's happening here? This is a passage about a new beginning for Israel. God is going to draw his children from every tribe and nation. And notice that in this passage, it is not just Israel that is referred to, but it says that all the nations, all of the world, everybody, all flesh, We'll see God's glory together. This is a prophetic promise about God striking back against the domain of darkness and reclaiming what is his. And there's a message to be sent about that action. But what's interesting is in verse three, there is a voice that cries out and gives that message, but who's the voice? We don't know. It's a future thing. God is, is speaking to Isaiah about a thing that will happen, but the voice is not identified. We don't know who this actually is. Go to John chapter one. John chapter one. There's this mysterious voice that will declare aloud that this is the time, this is the moment God is going to Act. Now, in John chapter one, let's go to verse 19. Now, the apostle John here, he's, he's, writing, he's writing about John the Baptist. So don't get confused, okay? In verse 19, it says, and this is the testimony of John. Speaking of John the Baptist, we're in chapter one, verse 19. When the Jews sent priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him, who are you? He confessed and did not deny, but confessed I am not the Christ. That is to say, I am not the Messiah. So John the Baptist is saying, I am not the Messiah. And they asked him, what then, are you Elijah? He said, I'm not. Are you the prophet? He said, no. And so they said to him, who are you? We've got to give an answer to those who sent us. Look at what John the Baptist says in verse 23. He said, I am the voice of the one crying out in the wilderness. Make straight the way of the Lord as the prophet Isaiah said so what is john the baptist saying john the baptist is saying in isaiah 40 verse 3 where there was that unknown voice that was delivering this message that god is about to act that the redemption of israel and the nations of the world is at hand there was a voice that was called to announce that message john the baptist says i'm the voice I'm the one crying out. I'm the one that said, I will go. John is connecting himself to Isaiah chapter 40. And so when you put Isaiah chapter 40 and John 1 together, what you realize is that in Isaiah 40, God and his staff team, are, are God is giving commands for a plan to launch a military strike on the forces of evil. And that the beginning of that strike is an announcement that this is the moment. Make way, clear the path. The God and his kingdom are arriving on the scene. That's the beginning and it's an announcement. And John the Baptist says, I'm the one carrying that message. I'm the one that has been called to bring voice to the announcement of Yahweh's arrival. Now, go to the book of Mark. By the way, we're gonna be jumping around all over the place. Today's gonna be a lot of summary and a lot of jumping around. So just hang in there with me. So right after, and I'm using the book of Mark, I've told you this before, the book of Mark is, uh, and shout out to John James, the the book of Mark is like a comic book. Um, And it reads, it's just action sequence after action. sequence. There's not a lot of, uh, not a lot of description around it. It's just, this is what happened, then this happened, then this happened, then this happened. And and it's a lot of action packed in a very short span. And so we're going to look at the book of Mark. And I just want you to notice the way that Mark arranges things to, to, bring us in on what's going on. So in the beginning of chapter one, Mark tells us about John the Baptist. In verse nine, he says that Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee to be baptized by John into the Jordan. So this is John who said, prepare the way of the Lord. He is arriving. God is striking. He is here. The kingdom has arrived. And so Jesus then shows up Because John is not the Messiah, but Jesus is. Jesus shows up and is baptized. Jesus goes into the water. He goes into the water. He emerges out of the water. And look at verse 12. It says, the spirit immediately drove him out into the wilderness. So again, let's just do some summary here. Jesus comes and goes into the water, out of the water, and into the wilderness. Bible scholars, that ought to be a familiar pattern to you. Where is that pattern? It's in the book of Exodus. Who else goes through the water and into the wilderness? The children of Israel. But what happens to the children of Israel? God's covenant people is they are rescued out of Egypt. They go through the water and they are delivered into the wilderness where they face temptation for false worship. They face temptation to worship false gods and what happens to them in the wilderness. They worship those false gods and fail Yahweh and they fail over and over and over and over again and that's that downward spiral that we talked about. But the Messiah, Israel's representative, God said would be faithful where Israel failed. As Israel's representative, the Messiah would be faithful where Israel failed. So the Messiah shows up on the scene after John declares this is the moment, the kingdom of God has arrived, the Messiah shows up, faithfully goes into the water, faithfully goes into the wilderness, and who does he meet there? Bible scholars, who does he meet there? Or just anyone who knows. I'll take anyone who has an answer. There you go. He meets the devil. He meets the devil who offers to Jesus the same temptation that he offered to Adam and Eve. Remember, the Messiah is going to be righteous where humanity has over and over failed. And it's essentially packaged differently, but essentially the same thing. Don't you want to step outside of what God has asked of you and be more than what God has given you can have kingdoms. You can not be hungry. You can, right? it's, a, it's an assortment of power tests to Jesus. But Jesus goes into the wilderness and overcomes the devil. Where Israel was seduced and failed, Jesus overcomes the devil the devil. So again, Jesus is baptized through the water, God announces him as his beloved son. It's a reference to the Davidic kingdom, and then Jesus goes into the wilderness, is faithful where Israel failed. Now, just imagine in the in the in the unseen realm now, you think things are getting stirred up a little bit. There's this guy that shows up on the scene and is grabbing something out of Isaiah chapter 40 saying, this is the day when God will come and strike. You think the unseen realm, you think darkness and demonic forces are getting a little stirred up with John the Baptist's declaration. Yeah, probably a little bit so. And then Jesus shows up and then goes and faces the devil head on and punches him in the mouth right at the very, very, very beginning. You think that things are shaking and moving in the unseen realm. Then Jesus comes out of that and Mark tells us that he begins to call the first of what will be how many disciples? Twelve disciples. How many tribes are in Israel? Twelve. What is Jesus doing? Jesus is calling to himself twelve representatives of the tribes of Israel who have been scattered and exiled. Jesus is calling his people back to himself. Come on. Come on, we're in church. <laughs> So he starts calling what was lost back to himself. And what was it lost to? Under the influence of dark and evil power. And Jesus says, no, these are mine. Come on. (laughs) Then Mark Cunningham, we were trying to mess with you a little bit, wrote the book of Mark, or read the book of Mark for us. (laughs) He didn't write it, but he read it. And what did he read? What happens? Right. After Jesus starts to say, no, these are mine. He's calling Israel back to himself. Then what's the very next thing that happens? Are you shocked that now dark and evil power takes another strike? No, what happens? Jesus is teaching and look who shows up. It says in the synagogue, there was a man with an unclean spirit and says, what do you have to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Basically, we know who you are but why are you here? (laughs) And what does Jesus do? Jesus casts out the unclean spirit after silencing him, he casts him out. Do you know that this is the first account in the Bible of a demon being cast out of someone? So are you reading this with me? Announcement that God's going to strike. Jesus goes into the into the water and into the wilderness, punches Satan in the mouth, comes out, calls the twelve to himself, and then comes and says, "By the way, also over other demonic power, I have authority. By cast somebody out, right? Cast them out of some. So what we're reading is a fight, <laughs> but we don't read it like that. We're just reading. We're just happy Bible readers. We're not, but it's a fight." Mark is literally laying out for us in the first chapter, action sequence after action sequence of Jesus coming and head on punching dark and evil powers in the mouth. I feel like my middle school football days are like coming up in me right now. (laughs) Keep saying, hit him in the mouth, hit him in the mouth. I'm like, whoa, Coach McPherson, weird, okay. Sorry. (laughs) Sorry. The next thing, in Luke chapter 10, Jesus sends out 70 disciples. Now here's what's wild about this. Jesus sends out 70 disciples and he gives them authority over dark and evil power, right? You remember the story? 70 is the same number as the nations that were dispersed in Genesis chapter 10. Say, whoa. Yeah. So Jesus sends 70 out. It's the same number of the nations that were dispersed at Babel in Genesis chapter 10. And Jesus sends 70 out with authority, with authority over dark and evil power. And what happens when they return? What do they return and report? They go, whoa, even the demons were subject to us. Jesus is like, I know, that's how this is gonna go, (laughs) right? The point is that Jesus is here to reclaim Israel and the nations of the world. And if you're reading the beginning of the Gospels, I wanna quote my friend Bill Plunkett, what you should read is game on, right? That's the way that it reads, And if you continue to read through the Gospels, what you're going to notice is kind of from that point, there are dust-ups and skirmishes with evil all throughout. And the thing that you're going to notice if you just read all the Gospels is that as Jesus moves towards the cross, those skirmishes with evil get more and more and more frequent and more intense what you should notice as you read it as one long continuous story is that there is a gathering happening, that there is more frequent interaction with evil, there is more intensity in that interaction, and it appears as if, and you should catch this as we read, and often we just miss it, we're not thinking about things in the right way, is that it appears that this confrontation is escalating, because it is. It is absolutely escalating. And throughout the Gospels, the other thing that's happening in the backdrop is that Jesus' disciples are becoming more and more and more clear on who Jesus is. It comes to a climax at this point in Matthew chapter 16. I'm not going to read all of this, but we know we know what Jesus says. Jesus says to his disciples, Who do you say, who do people say that I am? Who do you say that I am? And there's these, there's these different answers that are given, but Peter has this brilliant answer. He says, you are the Christ. He says, you're the Messiah, the son of the living God. And Jesus says, blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood didn't reveal that to you, but my father who is in heaven. Now watch what he tells Peter. And I tell you, Peter, on this rock, I will build my church. Now watch this. And the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Jesus is speaking of a future reality of a church that will interact in a world where the gates of hell have been overthrown. Yeah. Amen. And that reality is connected to who Jesus is because he is the Messiah, the son of the living God, What he's about to do is about to change history forever where now those that are in him will have authority over the gates of hell. Jesus is gonna do something that overthrows the gates of hell. You guys with me? You guys tracking this? Now, the other thing that you'll notice through the gospels is that Jesus' identity is understood in varying ways by different people. But even though his identity is understood, the plan for how he will overthrow darkness, the plan for how it's gonna happen, that is not understood. And over and over, we see confusion. In fact, Peter, right after this brilliant moment, saying, you are the Christ, the son of the living God, Jesus then says, okay, here's how it's gonna work. I'm gonna give myself. He speaks to them about his crucifixion, and Peter goes, no, 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 don't do that. That's not the plan. To which Jesus says, get behind me, Satan. Because B- Peter, speaking in the flesh, gave opportunity for the devil to go, don't do that. Don't give yourself, son of man. Don't do that. Do what you want to do. Sound familiar? Anybody ever heard that in their head? Don't do that. Don't be obedient. Do what you want to do. So Jesus says, get behind me, Satan. Satan. The point is that even though Jesus as the Messiah, the son of the living God is becoming more and more and more clear and you see that escalating through the gospels, how this is gonna work is not more and more clear. That part is not understood and so as we're moving towards the cross, these clashes with evil are happening more and more frequently and yet we're still not understanding how is this all going to work? And so, all four Gospels lead us through conflict after conflict after, after conflict, ultimately bringing us to the ultimate conflict, which is what? The cross. Now, I just want to tell you that for us, we get it. Why? Because we read after the Gospels. And we read the writers who, after having observed the, the events of Jesus, or looking back, and they're go- and his resurrection, they're going, oh, <laughs> And so we think that as it's happening, that everybody's going, oh yeah, totally, son of man, give yourself on a cross and raise three days later, that's how it's all gonna work. And I wanna just tell you that in real time, nobody understood that. Even though Jesus had been telegraphing it, nobody could get their head around the fact that the Messiah, the victorious one, the one that was gonna rid Israel of her enemies was also this suffering servant that those two went together, that he was gonna give himself and be raised three days later as an act of victory. Nobody was putting those things together. And so as this this climactic fight rushes to its climactic point, Jesus being arrested and betrayed is a strange moment. For those that were living it in real time, it was a dreadful and strange moment and meant the loss of hope. There was tremendous fear around this because it was like, wait a minute, I thought you were gonna be the one and now here you are being hauled off, arrested and betrayed. Is this all for nothing? That's what would have been going through the hearts and minds of those that were following Jesus in real time and so at the cross here's what we see and I'm doing a lot of summary you guys forgive me we got to get to a a point where we can slow down here and think but at the cross what you see is the convergence of several key factors number one who is it that ultimately puts Jesus into the hands of the Roman authorities who is it it's the Jewish leaders it's his own people his own people betray him to Rome. That's one factor. Deeper than that, cutting a little deeper than that, is his own people, who were also his disciples, are scattered and afraid and abandon him. So Jesus is betrayed and abandoned, and now he's also in the hands of the world's greatest power, Rome. And you need to pay attention to all three of those factors because all three, of those, all three of those entities have colluded with darkness. This is supposed to read as the climactic triumph of darkness over the Messiah. That's what it felt like. That's what it looked like. This is the one that we had so much hope in and yet darkness has had its way in that our own people have betrayed him. Rome now, the power and authority of the world representing the power of the nation's gods has now captured him and his own that are closest to him have abandoned him. What does that look like? It looks like darkness has snuffed out yet again God's attempt to rescue his people. And so Jesus goes to the cross and is put to death with the collusion of all of those factors and the powers of darkness. And what we're reading is what's happening on the cross is that everything that the powers of darkness has is being unleashed on Jesus in that moment. Did you see at the end of the video where Jesus is standing and all of a sudden and darkness just just comes over the top of him? That's what's happening at the cross. And in real time, in the moment, that very much feels like a loss the one in which we had so much hope has now been completely overcome. All of hell has literally been unleashed on Jesus and the end result is that hell has had its way and he has been nailed to a tree and it's over. One of my favorite writers of all time is C.S. Lewis. And one of my favorite book series of all time is, is uh, The Chronicles of Narnia. And in the, and, and the Lion and the Witch and the Wardrobe, C.S. Lewis portrays this moment. And I'm going to read a, a part, of the, part of the book to you. You guys good for some story time? One of the characters early, if you're not familiar, then get familiar this weekend. Um, but one of the, one of the characters uh, is Edmund and Edmund gets himself in all sorts of trouble, but ultimately Edmund betrays Aslan, who's the Jesus figure in the story. He's the lion. And Edmund betrays Aslan. Edmund betrays his family. He betrays all uh, those that are, that, are, that are good. And he's captured and deceived by the white witch. Well, Aslan gives himself surrenders, makes a deal with the witch, essentially saying, I will give my life for the life of the traitor. Come on, that got me. He says, I'm gonna give my life for the life of the the traitor. And so there's, a, there's an agreement, there's an exchange that's going to be made. And so late in the night, Aslan, everybody else is asleep, Aslan quietly wakes and, and walks out of the camp. Nobody really notices except for Lucy and Susan, these two little girls who walk with him as he goes. And they don't understand what he's doing as he walks alone. He's somber. He's focused, but he spends his time with them. And then he gets to a point where he tells them, I've got to go further. You have to stay here. What I've got to do, I've got to do alone. And so he goes alone and he goes and gives himself to the white witch. They meet at this place called the stone table and he gives himself to the white witch. And here's what happens. I wanna read this to you. I'm gonna do my best, friends, to do story time. Lindsay does it in our house a lot. I might not be the best reader. Muzzle him, said the witch. And even now, as they worked about his face, putting on the muzzle, one bite from his jaws would have cost two or three of them their hands, but he never moved. And this seemed to enrage all that rabble. I forgot to tell you that with the white witch, all of the forces of darkness are with her. And it seemed to enrage all that rabble. Everyone was at him now. Those who had been afraid to come near him, even after he was bound, began to find their courage. And for a few minutes, the two girls could not even see him. So thickly was he surrounded by the whole crowd of creatures, kicking him, hitting him, spitting on him, jeering at him. At last, the rabble had had enough of this. They began to drag the bound and muzzled lion to the stone table some pulling and some pushing. He was so huge that even when they got him there, it took all of their efforts to hoist him onto the surface of it. Then there was more tying and tightening of cords. The cowards, the cowards, Sobbed Susan. Are they still afraid of him even now? When once Aslan had been tied and tied so that he was really a mass of cords, on the flat stone, a hush fell on the crowd. Four hags holding four torches stood at the corners of the table. The witch bared her arms as she had bared them the previous night when it had been Edmund instead of Aslan. Then she began to wet her knife. It looked to the children when the gleam of the torchlight fell on it as if the knife were made of stone, not of steel. And it was of a strange and evil shape. As last she drew near, she stood by Aslan's head. Her face was working and twitching with passion, but his looked up at the sky, still quiet, never angry or afraid, but a little sad. Then just before she gave the blow, she stooped down and said in a quivering voice, And now who has won? Fool, did you think that by all this you would save the human traitor? Now I will kill you instead of him as our pact was and so the deep magic will be appeased. But when you are dead, what will prevent me from killing him as well? And who will take him out of my hand then? Understand that you have given me Narnia forever. You have lost your own life and you have not saved his. In that knowledge, despair and die. The children did not see the actual moment of the killing. They couldn't bear to look and had covered their eyes. In the next chapter, it says the rising of the sun had made everything look so different. All colors and shadows were changed that for a moment they didn't see the important thing, and then they did. The stone table was broken into two pieces by a great crack that ran down it from end to end and there was no Aslan. Now at this point, all of the evil creatures have gone. They think that victory has been won and they have fled to go now and attack and overthrow the rest of Aslan's army. The stone table was broken in two pieces by a great crack that round down it from end to end and there was no Aslan. Oh, oh, cried the girls, rushing back to the table. Oh, it's too bad, sobbed Lucy. They might have left the body alone. Who's done it, cried Susan. What does it mean? Is it magic? Yes, said a great voice behind their backs. It is more magic. They looked around, there, shining in the sunrise, larger than they had seen him before, shaking his mane, for apparently it had grown again, stood Aslan himself. Oh, Aslan, cried both the children, staring up at him, almost as much frightened as they were glad. Aren't you dead then, dear Aslan, said Lucy? Not now, said Aslan. You're not, not a, asked Susan in a shaky voice. She couldn't bring herself to say the word ghost. Aslan stooped his golden head and licked her forehead. The warmth of his breath and a rich sort of smell that seemed to hang about his hair came all over her. Do I look it, he said. Oh, you're real, you're real. Oh, Aslan, cried Lucy, and both girls flung themselves upon him and covered him with kisses. But what does it all mean, asked Susan, when they were somewhat calmer. It means, said Aslan, That though the witch knew the deep magic, there is a magic deeper still which she did not know. Her knowledge goes back only to the dawn of time. But if she could have looked a little further back into the stillness and the darkness before time dawned, she would have read there a different incantation. She would have known that when a willing victim who had committed no treachery was killed in a traitor's stead, the table would crack and death itself would start working Backwards. As they went out, they found found a man of Cyrene, Simon by name. They compelled this man to carry his cross. And when they came to a place called Golgotha, which means place of a skull, they offered him wine to drink mixed with gall. But when he tasted it, he would not drink it. And when they had crucified him, they divided his garments among them by casting lots. Then they sat down and kept watch over him there. And over his head, they put the charge against him, which read, this is Jesus, king of the Jews. Then two robbers were crucified with him, one on the right and one on the left. And those who passed by derided him, wagging their heads and saying, you who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself. If you're the son of God, come down from the cross so also the chief priests with the scribes and elders mocked him, saying, He saved others, but he can't save himself. He's the king of Israel. Let him now come down from the cross and will believe in him. He trusts in God. Let God deliver him now if he desires him, for he said, I am the son of God. And the robbers who were crucified with him also reviled him in the same way. Now from the sixth hour, there was darkness all over the land until the ninth hour, and about the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice saying, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani? that is my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And some of the bystanders hearing it said, this man is calling Elijah. And one of them at once took a sponge and filled it with sour wine and put it on a reed and gave it to him to drink. But the other said, wait, let us see whether Elijah will come to save him. And Jesus cried out again with a loud voice and yielded up his spirit. And behold, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom, and the earth shook and the rocks split. The tombs also were opened, and many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised, and coming out of the tombs after his resurrection, they went up into the holy city and appeared to many. When the centurion and those who were with him, keeping watch over Jesus, saw the earthquake and what took place, they were filled with awe and said, truly this was the Son of God. So underneath what looked like at the cross, a decisive victory for evil and a snuffing out of God's plan is actually the deeper reality of perfect love which was activated in the sacrificial death of the lamb who scripture says was slain before the foundations of the world. And on the third day, the sun, the risen sun, emerges from the grave, having defeated the powers of darkness with self-sacrificial love and inaugurated a new exodus for the nations of the world who had been held captive and enslaved to sin and death and evil. Kids, we put a, a cross in your bag because a cross is the, the place where used to we would look as a place of death. The cross in the time of Jesus was a place of absolute agony and torture and death, but that which evil thought it had won was no victory at all. And that which was a symbol of death is now a symbol of victory and life. It's past noon, so here's your invitation. Here's what Paul says. Romans 6, do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. for one who has died has been set free from sin. Listen, church, what Jesus did on the cross and in his resurrection, permanently overthrew the powers of sin and death and evil and the grave. And every single one of us that joins ourselves by faith to the Messiah, by grace, receives the gift of life. And we participate in that victory, evil and sin and death and the grave have no power over you and me, because we belong to him. And I wanna wanna invite you to stand this morning. And I wanna just tell you that that offer for life is available to every single one of us in this room. What Jesus has done is not just do something so that you could go to heaven someday. He has overthrown the powers that have held you captive to the worship of self so that you might have life in him so that you might be exactly who God called you to be, so that you might live as you were created to live. He has won a victory that you and I might be free. And if today is a day where you need to join yourself to him to experience that victory, to come out from the bondage of sin in your life, I would encourage you to make your way to the back of the room where you're gonna find one of our prayer partners there that would be happy to walk you through what stepping into the kingdom and beginning to follow Jesus looks like. Please just make your way back there if you are at a point where you wanna give your life to Jesus and be free. For the rest of us, I would just ask you for this moment, we're gonna sing about victory to consider the cross, to consider all that was paid that we would be free and to praise him for it. Spirit, would you help us? Would you help us see the truth and the reality of all that you have done for us? And would you fill our lungs with praise? In Jesus' name, amen.